Matthew chapter 26. I want to talk to you about arming the saints. We're in Nehemiah chapter 4. But I first want to <coughs> talk to you about standing up to our enemy so that we can finish our work. So, Matthew chapter 26, look in verse 51. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus taught us how to fight. But he taught us to fight with different weapons. I want you to see something that happened to Jesus, our example, our master, our savior. Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. Behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Now, he's a very bad swinger. Because, I mean, honestly, you're, you're striking at somebody you normally cut off more than an ear. But thankfully, that's all he got. But who, who was this guy who was, who was swinging the sword? Anybody know? It was Peter. Then it goes on. It says, verse 52, Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all that, now where is Jesus, by the way? Talk to me. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been violated. He has been surrounded and captured like a criminal. And here the crowd of angry mob is surrounded, and Peter's doing the only thing he knows what to do, which is fight. And Jesus says, put away your sword. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou, look at this, verse 53. Remember that I can pray. He says, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? That thus it must be. In the same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief with swords and stays for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you laid no hand on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, Jesus was not giving in. He was not quitting like his disciples thought. I mean, all Jesus did was stood there when people gathered around him and began to tie him up and began to drag him away. It looked like Jesus was quitting. But what was Jesus doing? He was wrestling on another level. He was fighting the spirit behind those men. Amen? <clears throat> and you know what? He defeated the spirit behind those men. He could have fought using lightning, earthquakes. He could have brought all the armies of heaven, but he didn't. Because all night long he had wrestled in prayer <clears throat> and had already won the victory in preparation for the cross. <clears throat> now, Peter says that we are to arm ourselves with the very same weapons. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 1. Peter says that those weapons seem to be... And, and here's a guy who knew how to use a sword. At least he probably got better. But he says, you know what? We need to arm ourselves with better weapons. And 1 Peter chapter 4, for as much then... Remembering Christ's suffering back even in the Garden of Gethsemane. 1 Peter 4, 1, For as much then as Christ had suffered for us in the flesh, and he did, we need to arm ourselves likewise with the same what? With the same way of thinking, with the same precision of thought and of, of, of decisions. For he that hath suffered in the flesh 
has not been defeated, but has actually ceased from sin, has actually got victory over sin. One more thought. <clears throat> the weapons that we possess as Christians are very powerful. They're often ignored. Now go to the left, find 2 Corinthians now. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> go ahead and look at, verse, start in verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not flesh and blood and bones, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Where are those strongholds? In our imaginations, in our fears, in our emotions. Casting down, verse 5, imaginations, and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. I'm able to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, what we've got is we've got generations of Christians who are defeated, discouraged, and beat up. When according to Paul, we're supposed to be more than conquerors. So somehow, we've laid down or we've ignored the weapons that God gave us to be able to fight the spirit behind flesh and blood. So this morning, I want us to just take a moment and arm ourselves, like the Bible says. I don't think I could do this. I really need a whole Sunday to talk to you about spiritual weapons and spiritual warfare. I need a whole month of Sundays, maybe. I'm going to try to give you a taste of what Nehemiah attempted to do with his people as they were surrounded by enemies and they were getting very discouraged. Father, we bow before you and ask you in these brief moments, God, that you would stretch our thoughts, stretch our understanding to grasp the value of invisible weapons, of Christ-honoring weapons, of biblical weapons, of um, powerful weapons, and of a wrestling that takes place on our knees, not in our face and in our tone. So God, I pray for help this morning because we need this. Our enemy is too good. He is far too efficient. He knows how to trip us up into battling in the wrong realm. So God, give us the ability to battle in the right place, with the right weapons. Because a battle was fought 2,000 years ago for men's souls. And it was won without weapons, without armies. It was won on the cross. And right here today, it needs to be won in somebody's life. Lord, their soul needs to be saved. Their destiny changed. Their, their mind and life cleansed and washed under the blood of the Lamb. Help somebody to trust Jesus Christ today as Savior, not just as a good teacher. So bless as we go into your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> um, Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah chapter 4. <clears throat> just before Psalms, you'll hit a couple of books. Uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Find Nehemiah chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I'll tell you, it's about 440 years before the birth of Christ. So to get your time frame there, a lot has happened at this time. Israel and Judah were defeated. They were conquered, they were captured, and they were enslaved by a guy named uh, Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. There will be a test after this, Weston, so we'll write these down now. <laughs> And during that battle, the walls, every wall and every gate of Jerusalem was completely destroyed and burned to the ground. 
140 years later, a new emperor, Cyrus, frees the Jewish people and allows them to return home to go and rebuild. And at first, not many go. They kind of liked it in Persia. You know, 140 years, people get used to things. They sort of get used to the countryside. They get used to how getting along. And then when somebody says, you can go home, not many people decided to go home. But three men motivated a couple of, ten, a couple of tens of thousands, about 40,000 to go home. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Now, we talked about Ezra, and we're in the book of Nehemiah. But those three men motivated people to go back and rebuild their nation. Now, we're paying attention mainly to uh, Nehemiah. Now, out of those 40,000, only a small group volunteered to begin to rebuild the city. <clears throat> you know, that's always the case. You can have a large crowd in the church. But if I said, how many will be here and help do X, Y, Z, all of a sudden, all the hands go down and I get a smaller number. That's always the case. We always have something to do. Here, these small band of people were determined to rebuild the walls of ancient Jerusalem. They were not professional masons or bricklayers. They were simple people with families. They had grandparents hanging around. They were struggling to quickly rebuild these protective walls and gates so they could get back to raising their families and enjoying living in the will of God. Now, one thing that's very important is they were not welcomed there. Go back to chapter 4. You're in chapter 4, verse 7. It came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah, and these are two bad guys, they got some friends called the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. When they heard that the walls of Jerusalem were, were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. So uh, as they're rebuilding along the, the countryside all around, bands of armies of, of angry enemies began to surround them. Now these guys really, honestly, are scared. Look at verse 10. It says, and Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is, what's that word? It means it's dropping off. They're not being so zealous. They're not working so hard. And there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. And just before the enemy, they were so excited that we can do this. Yes, let's keep going. And now they're saying, we can't do this. They were scared. And I don't blame them. Armies, and they've got torches. I'm talking about flaming torches. And they've got a, a smirk on their face that they're just going to burn you down. You'd be scared, too. Now, Nehemiah's got to do something. You can't just go hope for the best, you know. Oh, well, maybe they won't attack. No, they will attack. He says, I've got to do something. And so last week we saw that Nehemiah did a lot of things to prepare the people because he knew what was coming. He knew there was going to be a fight. So he allowed God to use the opposition to make better people. He didn't say, guys, God has failed us. He's allowing our enemy to attack. And don't you feel that way sometimes? But Nehemiah says, no, this is just as much God's will as it is when we have a good day. So if God has allowed our enemies to surround us, let's be better people. Let's not blame God and complain to God. Let's trust God. So he said, God, we're going to trust that you're going to make us a better people through this. Secondly, he encouraged everyone. And don't you need some encouragement? Don't you just, I mean, listen, that the news, the constant roll of discouragement and disappointment and evil 
and, 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 and troubles in the world just pulls us down. It's nice to get encouraged, amen? It's nice when grandkids come up and little Chloe comes up and uh, uh, grandma says, you love your grandpa? And she goes, I'm encouraged, amen? You love your grandpa? Yeah. And Nehemiah encouraged everyone. He decided, he said, we've got to believe God instead of those threats out there. He asked everyone to choose a side. He said, whose side are you going to be on? Are you going to be on their side? You're going to walk over there and say, I give up? Or are you going to be on this side and stand with God? He also stood at those, at those walls and he looked out and he rebuked and he says, you have no part in our rebuilding. You have nothing to do with us. Go away. <laughs> Amen. I don't know if you've ever done it, but there's nothing wrong with you under oppression and you under discouragement, just standing up, make sure nobody else is listening. <laughs> Stand up and says, leave me alone, devil. I'm sick and tired of you pulling me down and discouraging me. I'm trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I'm living under his grace. I'm in the, in the, uh, I'm in the freedom of the will of God. Leave me alone. Amen. Rebuke him. Amen. You say, people think you're weird. I don't care what people think. I, think, I worry whether the devil wonders if I'm right. He rebuked the enemy. He asked the people to go. He says, guys, let's keep building. And then, boy, he says, and let's pray. You know, like Brother Eric was just saying, uh, don't, do not count on the fact that we just gather on a Sunday because the only reason why you're here is because we prayed for you to be here. And we prayed for God to get you through the week. And we prayed for God to help you and keep you sane and keep you from killing each other. Amen. So on Wednesday night, there is a prayer meeting going on that is just as vital as the preaching on Sunday morning. Amen, amen, amen. He says, we got to pray. And then he said, we got to put a watch up that can watch the movements of our enemies so in case they attack, we're ready. Now, one more thing was needed, all right? Just, just, just hold with me now and, and take a breath and say, what else do they need to do? He needed to arm everybody. See, they already had the trowel. They already had the, 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 the cement. They already had the rubble to work with. They already had the plans. They already had the work to do. But with the enemy out there, they says, we've got to have arming. We've got to have weapons. So he says, I've got to arm the people. Now, that brings me to a point, and that is the reality of spiritual warfare. Sometimes let's go to, you come back to Nehemiah. You want to hold it in place there. It's okay. But go to Ephesians. We're going to go to our memory verse and look at the context there. Ephesians chapter uh, 6. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. The reality of the spiritual warfare for the believer. I don't know. When, when I was not a Christian, when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, I used to mess around listening to heavy metal music. and You know what I did? Not because I like the music, because I like getting scared. It was, it was weird. It's just fear, sort of like a high. And uh, I had no idea the kind of demonic work I was putting myself under. But I just sat there and I listened to, I'm not even going to mention the names, give them any glory at all. But I sit there and I listen to them and I try to understand the words and then I, I couldn't go to sleep the rest of the night. <laughs> There's a, but, you know, I never cared about spiritual warfare before I got saved, but ever since I've been saved, I know how powerful the devil is, and I know what he's trying to do. The Bible says he walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, what? Devour. So here in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 6, look there in verse 11, put on a little bit of the armor of God. Is that what it says? No, put on the whole armor of God. 
Without it, you won't be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, his schemes, his plans, his, his works. Verse 12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's a distraction. Our wrestling is against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, verse 13, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, he repeats himself, that you may be able to withstand when he attacks in the evil day. And having done all, so stay standing. Amen. So the reality is this. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, there are all of these comparisons. There are all of these, these uh, pictures. So when you read about Sinbala and Tobiah, you're learning about demons. They're not the devil. They're the minions. They're the, they're the workers that are there right alongside you making your life miserable some days. They just come, and they're like a thorn in the flesh. They just poke, and they pierce, and they remind you of stupid things, and they bring you down. And that's what Sanibal and Tobiah was doing. Nehemiah is like the Lord Jesus Christ calling you to keep going. He's calling you to just keep focused on God. Uh, stay, in, stay in the work. Um, uh, don't worry about Sanballat and Tobiah. We'll work with him. We'll deal with him in just a minute. The Jews were just like believers, like a big church. As they're building all of those walls, it's like, it's like a church. You know what a church builds? People. Amen. Now, some of you are as thick as a brick. But it is true. A church doesn't build buildings. Now, it's nice when you have a building. Amen. Four of you. It's nice when you have a building. But a building doesn't make a church. People do. And if you don't reach people, you don't have a church. Amen? So the Jews were just like the believers. They're building that thing, but it was for the believers. It was for those people who had come. They had been made free, but they now needed to rebuild what sin had destroyed. The walls and the gates were what was broken in their lives that needed to be repaired. And there's a lot that needs to be repaired in our lives. The threat, listen, that threat of those uh, uh, Arabians and the Ashdodites and Sanballat and Tobiah and all of those guys out there, that was real in the threat against your walk with God and your sanity and, and just your, your, um, uh, your, your purity, your, your, I want to say sanity over and over and over and over <laughs> because that's where we're attacked a lot. But everything about you that's good is under total attack and is just as threatened. Now, the enemy, and I said this last week, and I, I really think it's very important for you to understand, the enemy doesn't go away. God did not give Nehemiah an atomic bomb to just eradicate his enemy. God told Nehemiah to give him weapons to stop the enemy in their tracks and not let them get any further. You know, one day, Jesus will take care of our enemy, amen? But until then, we can keep him at bay. You understand that phrase? You can keep him outside, amen? So Nehemiah looked and he saw great fear. Looked there uh, uh, in everyone's eyes and, and just like one of the greatest leaders, really, the more I read in, in uh, Nehemiah, go to Nehemiah again, the more I read about him, the more I am so impressed with this guy that he's one of the greatest leaders in the entire Bible. And really of all time, what he was attempting to do. And like a great leader, like a great, great leader, He's got to do three things. <clears throat> he tells them they do not need to be afraid. Now, only a lunatic will tell somebody that unless it's true. He also tells them to take up some weapons. They didn't have weapons at that point. At that point, they're busy building, but as they see the enemy, they don't know what to do. They're panicking, and Nehemiah says, get you a sword. Get you a spear. Three, 
He tells them to fight and never to, to, to take on the enemy and to not give up. So let's read Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13 to 23, and then I'll give you some thoughts. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 13. <clears throat> Therefore said I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places, I even set the people after their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. I looked, and I rose up and saw, and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Watch these words. Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. We'd say terrifying. And fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. It came to pass when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall and everyone to his work. Amen. We went back to work. It came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears the shields and the bows and the habergeons and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They were all unified. They which builded on the wall and they which bear burdens with those that laid it and every one with one of his hands wrought in the work and with the other hand held a what? For the builders, every one had his sword girded by his side and so builded. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, hey, the work is great, large, and we are separated upon the wall, one far from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet? Resort, we'd say, run ye thither unto us. Our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half of them held their spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, at the same time, said I unto the people, let every one with his servant Lodge within Jerusalem, that in the night they may be a guard to us and labor on the day. So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor, my, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that everyone put them off for washing. So Nehemiah here armed the people with real weapons. Back there in verse 13, look at him. Down at the end, he says, swords, spears, and bows. Now, normally when we think of saints... Normally, when we think of saints, we usually think of, well, let me say this. I gotta, I'm going to keep to my notes here. The, the Jews needed to defend themselves. It's called self-defense. They, uh, <clears throat> they had started to take back this land that was in ruin because that they were trying to get back into the middle of the will of God. Guess who shows up to stop them? Their enemies, just like the devil does. <clears throat> Now, uh, self-defense, oh, well, I still have more to say. I've got to get this. Self-defense used to be a hallmark of Western civilization, but not anymore. Um, let me talk about Christians for a minute. We normally think of Christians, and those are saints. By the way, you may, you may not act like it. You may not look like it. But according to the Bible, a Christian is a saint of God. So I know we call each other brother and sister, but you can call Saint Marcel, Saint Dean, and that's hard. Saint Nita, that's nice. Um, but but I want you to understand, most people, when they think of Christians, they think of otherworldly. That's the word I've seen. Harmless, pacifist, floating on air. That's what a saint is. Always speaking with a quiet voice. Never dangerous. Now, none of those characteristics are wrong, but the Bible has a much more complete 
view of what Christians are. You know what Christians are supposed to be? Armed with spiritual weapons. We ought to be a threat to the devil. Amen. I will not be a threat to you. I will not be a threat to this government. But I should be a threat to the devil. Amen. I should be a threat to discouragement and depression. I should be a threat to anger. I should be a threat to sin creeping back into my life. I better be a threat if I'm a Christian. And I better have some aggression about it too. I cannot be nice with sin and win. Amen? You cannot be nice with sin and win. So back to Nehemiah here. <clears throat> uh, Self-defense used to be a hallmark. Um... Have you, have you ever heard of, of these court cases recently where somebody breaks into a house and somebody kills them or hurts them and then they're sued and the person who in their house is now in jail? You ever heard of that? Has that not discouraged you? Why have a door? <laughs> Come on in. Yes, that's right. Let me show you where the safe is. Oh, the dishes. Yeah, you want something? Hmm. You know, people used to be able to, used to be a right to protect yourself and your family. But our modern world is so pacifistic. We are headed for a totalitarian state where the government will be so heavy-handed because nobody will defend themselves, and so we will have absolute anarchy. See, self-defense and the ownership of weapons for self-defense is foreign to people. They have no idea what war is like. They have no idea what the devil's like. They have no idea what enemies are like. Really, kids who have grown up over the last 10, 15 years think it's always been safe. There is no, oh, there's never been a world war. World War I, World War II. That's an ancient history. No, that was in the 20th century. A hundred million people were slaughtered in the 20th century in the names of empires and countries fighting one another. Throughout history, unarmed societies have been always overrun and conquered instantly. In 1911, Turkey established gun control. So from 1915 to 1917, 1.5 million Armenians were slaughtered because they had no way to defend themselves. You ever heard of the Kurds, the Kurdish people? Up until the Iraqi war, they were never allowed to have weapons. Now they've got weapons, and now they're established themselves as a country. When you take away people's weapons, they are the slaves of who's ever more powerful. In 1929, the former Soviet Union established gun control, and I'm not for guns. Don't you believe that I want everybody to get guns? Don't believe that at all. I'm just showing you that governments, in order to keep people under control, they take away their weapons. They said they had some difficult citizens down in, in Georgia, so they disarmed those difficult citizens, and after 1929, from 1929 to 1949, 30 million Russians were slaughtered who could not defend themselves. So the next time you hear of Chechnya and you hear of all of those areas having a bad attitude, it's because about 80 years ago they were slaughtered without any weapons and without any way to defend themselves. I could go on and on. The most recent one was Rwanda when they disarmed the Tutsi people and being, and being un unable to defend themselves. And I'm not picking sides. I'm just telling you, when you disarm a group, it's meant to conquer them. Self-defense used to be a hallmark of Western civilization. I tell you, the same is true with Christians. Because if you do not arm yourself with the solid truths of Scripture, and by the way, don't arm yourself with the truths of YouTube, 
I get my doctrine from so-and-so on the YouTube. I pity you. If you do not arm yourself with the solid truths of Scripture, you will fall for anything. If you do not arm yourself with the whole armor of God, like it says there in Ephesians chapter 6, you will be mincemeat for the devil. If you do not arm yourself with the will of God, you will find yourself so far away you won't know how to get home. Amen? If you do not arm yourself with the mind of Christ, you will have the mind of the devil and the lust of your father. You will do. All Christians who live unarmed and unready to fight the good fight are destined to be defeated, captives of demonic powers, and they're, they're destined to be miserable. They're saved. They're going to heaven, but it'll be a shock to them because everything's going to be a defeat. Just know this. Unarmed societies are quickly conquered. And folks, that's, this is how you're supposed to be. Um, you know, uh, I believe every person in here, you've got kids, teach them to defend their brothers and sisters. Teach them that when somebody comes and pushes your sister around, they're on the ground. You say, yes, because do not wait for the principal to come in and save and protect. Your job as a brother or sister is to defend. And when you find a Christian that is going through a hard time, go to their defense, especially in prayer, especially in encouragement, especially with words from Scripture that says God's going to get us through this thing. Don't let the devil just keep bullying people. Amen. It's time we stood up and we stood against our enemy. You say, well, so-and-so, they threw eggs at those people that were trying to just get the no vote out. I know, I know, but the people who threw the eggs at them, they're not the problem. There's a spirit behind them, isn't there? And we need to stand up to them. Now, two thoughts. It may surprise you, but Jesus actually told his disciples to be ready to actually defend their families. Take your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. <clears throat> Hopefully, our society and our community will have never met a more submissive and respectful and har harmless group of people than Bible-believing Christians. But we Bible-believing Christians know the value of our families, and by God's grace, we will defend them. I'm telling you, the nature of our singular enemy is out to destroy our kids' purity, to take away their innocence, to, to make them into the pit of, of hell. And you've got to fight that. Luke, uh, Luke uh, 22 and verse 35. 22-35. And he said to them, When I sent you without purse and without scrip and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said nothing. We didn't lack anything. Verse 36. But he said unto them, But now he that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that hath no what? Let him sell his garment and buy one. Go get you a sword. Verse 37, for I say unto you that this is written, uh, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me, that he was reckoned among the transgressors for the things concerning me. They have an end. He's talking about his cross. Verse 38, and they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. <laughs> They're very proud of themselves. And he said, that's enough. That's, that's all you need. That's fine. He's not saying going out and say, I've got 47 AK-47s, and I got, no, no, no. He said, you've got to have some value that you see in your family to defend them. 
Just know this. Satan's first task in your life is to, to disarm you of the powerful spiritual weapons Christ gave you at salvation. Go back to chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 21. Jesus gives a simple story, an illustration. <clears throat> Watch the use of words. Luke eleven twenty one. 21. When a strong man, like Dean here, when he's what? When he's armed, he's able to keep his palace. And his goods are in what? So if I had Dean up here standing, his hands are full, so I want him to, but Dean's up here. And when he's armed, what does he say he's able to do? He's able to keep things at peace. He's able to hold on to what he owns. He's able to be a deterrent. He's able to stop a thief. You know, you go up to the doors. We go door knocking. You go up to the door. And in America, you'll see these, um, see these signs. Don't worry about the dog. Worry about the owner. <laughs> and that ought to be true. Amen. But here, verse 22, But when a stronger than he shall come unto, upon him and overcome him, what does he do? He taketh from him all his armor, wherein he trusteth, and he divideth his spoils. Just know this. Is the devil stronger than you and me? But as long as you've got God's weapons, he can't, he can't pull, you, uh, pull you down. He can't destroy you. He can discourage you, I know. And he can attack you, but he can't win. So what does he do? He gets you to ignore the weapons and to go out and go through the day without ever walking with God, without ever uh, getting right with God, without ever praying, and without ever feasting on God's word without ever having a scripture to hold on to you throughout the day, and you go out and the devil just, and you're in pieces. Now, he gives them weapons. Go back there to, and this is really cute, back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4, and we see three, and then there's four, and actually there's five weapons. They're kinds of weapons. Now, they didn't have the most advanced weaponry. When we think of weapons, we usually think of tanks and machine guns and grenades and missiles. God's people rarely ever had that up until recently. By the way, you ever seen a map of the Middle East? You see all of the area that are, um, um, that are Muslim? And you see a little bitty tiny dot that says Israel there? The only reason why that dot is still there is because they've got some serious defensive weapons. <laughs> Amen. Now, Israel rarely had those kind of things. I mean, in King Saul's day, how many do you think had swords in all of Saul's army? Two. <laughs> rest of them had pitchforks and sticks and shovels. I don't know what. Now, they were an army, and they were undefeatable, but they didn't have the most advanced weapons. In David's day, things weren't much better. They had some slings. They had some shields and swords, and that was okay, bows and arrows, but don't imagine for a moment that they were ever more vulnerable because they didn't have great weapons. See, weapons don't make the battle. David defeated an entire army with a little sling and a littler rock. Samson defeated 800 with a jawbone of a donkey. And Israel's armies almost always won every battle, and they only ever lost when there were secret sins unconfessed. So God just made sure the best plans and the best army was going to lose. 
Now, in, De in, De in Nehemiah's day, they only had swords, spears, bows and arrows, and an old-fashioned good word, habergeon. Sounds like a vegetable. But it's basically a breastplate. <clears throat> now, the swords were for close hand-to-hand -hand combat. I mean, here comes, Dean, uh, here comes Darren, Darren, and he's going to attack me. Out comes the sword, and I can take care of him. He's confronting eye-to-eye, uh, -eye, toe toe-to-toe. Sword was for close combat. The spears were what you threw if you've got an army and you're trying to go from here to there and there's a, there's a wall of people there, you use the sword to throw, or not sword, the, the spear to throw to, uh, to move the enemy and to kill the enemy that's in your way. Now, the bows and arrows are for even longer distance. So it's kind of like I've got my close range Warfare taken care of. I've got my medium range. I want to go this direction, so we use the spears to stop them. And I use the arrows for long distance. Now, this is really cute. Uh, uh, by the way, the, the breastplate protected them from the strikes of the enemy. And so they wore this, uh, sometimes it was a coat of email. That was a joke. A coat of mail. And uh, sometimes it was leather. So, something so that if, if an arrow ever got to you, maybe it would be deflected and wouldn't pierce you. But those swords... Those spears, they look so simple, but they were, they were amazing because it was all that they needed. Now, we are armed with similar weapons. Let me go through. Are we not given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? You ever notice how much of your Bible deals with military things? Because we are in a fight. This is not about a cruise, folks. We're not on a cruise. We're in a battle. So we have the sword of the word of God. You know, when you quote the truth of scripture against the lies of the devil, you can hurt him and you can encourage yourself. The spears are like piercing prayers against your demonic enemy who stands in your path. Amen. Chuck some prayers at your enemies. I pray against you. I believe that God put me here. God, God's directing me and I'm not going to let the devil discourage me. Bows and arrows. I love this. I was sitting there thinking... You know, when you pray against your enemies, attack from a distance. Now, some of you have young ladies and young men uh, in your family. <clears throat> Maybe they're your wife. I don't know. Um, uh, young Beth. But uh, if you have a young man or a young woman in your family growing up and they're 10 or 11 years old, you need to start shooting some arrows, folks, not at them. But you need to start praying, God, give my son a godly wife in 50 years. No. <laughs> um, God, Help me raise my son to be a godly husband. That's a long-distance prayer, amen? You've been given a weapon. Don't, don't just wake up and the kid is 19 years old and telling you, we're going to get, we're going to live again. If you haven't been praying for the decade before that, shame on us, amen? We've been given weapons that allow us to not only handle demonic attack head-to-head, toe-to-toe, and to defeat anybody that's in our way, but we've been able to shoot off into the distance, even into the future in our prayers. Amen. And you know what? By the way, the only reason why you are not defeated every day is because of Christ's righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. When the devil comes up and reminds you of your sins, you can say they're under the blood. Amen. Now, they had one other weapon that is very, very important. And there in verse 16, he says this, uh, down at the very, uh, chapter 4, verse 16. And the rulers were behind all the house of Judah, which was the tribe. Everybody was unified. Wouldn't, isn't that a great church where everybody's together? 
Everybody says, yes, let's do it. Amen. Instead of everybody going, I don't know. I don't like the color of the carpet. <laughs> no, we need unity. By the way, let me say this. Um, Nehemiah weren't armed them all. This was not, well, it was only for the men. Well, it was only for the adults. No. Do you know what the Bible says? Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, when you were a kid, your mom and your grandma raised you on the Bible. He says, from a child, thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Don't you say, well, my kids, they can't understand the king's English. They do. Raise them on it. Raise them on the weapon of the Bible that, that is not. Don't give them a children's Bible and they're 14 years old. Oh, it's got pictures in it. They don't need pictures at 14 years old. They need the word of God. Amen. And if you wait until they're 14 years old before you introduce them to the king's English, they're going to think you're a hypocrite and go, well, I don't want to work at it now. What I'm telling you is this. They handed weapons to everyone that could handle one. I mean, you don't give a, a 10-pound sword to a six-year-old. But you can teach a six-year-old how to fight and how to prepare with a wooden stick and how to stand their ground, how to defend their brethren, and how to be ready for the attack. Amen. So is everybody understanding? I'm not telling everybody to become aggressive. Oh, I want to go fight now. No, 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 no. I'm trying to get you to understand there's nothing unchristian about believers being armed with the right kind of weapon. Are you with me? People ought to be able to come up to you and spit in your face and you walk away. Amen. It'll be hard. Jesus said, "Come, somebody comes and they strike you on one cheek, you will turn to them and give them the other. So we're not talking about us being aggressive, full of anger. Oh, I'm going to get... No. You just go home and fight on a different level. Amen. Nehemiah not only armed them with weapons, but he armed them with courage. And I like this. This is really cute. Verse 14, and he says several things here. And I looked and I rose up and I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, look at this command, be not ye afraid of them. Now, courage is three things for a Christian. Number one, it is a command. You may not like it, but it is, you've got to do it whether you feel like it or not. <clears throat> Strange as it may seem, believers are never told to hope that things are going to turn out. I wouldn't read a Bible like that. Oh, just keep hoping. It might turn out okay. <laughs> That's not how the Bible talks. You're not told to dream that things are going to be okay. The Bible records God commanding his people to not be afraid and to fear not 105 times. Listen to Matthew 14. The disciples are out in a boat. The ship is sinking. The storm is blowing. I don't know what it was, but every time they went, when Jesus said go across the Sea of Galilee, there was always a storm. Here they were, and Jesus is walking on the water. They only, they don't see him glowing. There's no halo over him. There's no angelic chorus going, ah. There is just a storm. It is dark. There is lightning, thunder, and they see a shadow. I don't know if you've ever been Maybe at night sitting on the couch and you got the light on, you're reading a book and you see something move out of the corner of your eye. And your heart stops. <laughs> Honey, <laughs> there is something big underneath the uh, bookshelf over there. <laughs> well, they see this thing coming at them. Verse four, chapter 14, 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, which means 3 a.m., Jesus went over them walking on the sea, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear, but straightway Jesus spake to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. 
So there, listen, folks, there's a time to be afraid, and there's a time not to be afraid. And courage is a command to not be afraid. It is also a choice because you're going to have to decide, I'm on the winning side. I'm going to choose to believe I can win. And a lot of people, when they're trying to put down the cigarettes or when they're trying to deal with some sin, get victory in their life, you know what they're saying or what the devil's telling them? You can't do it. You've tried this so many times and you'll fail. Do you know what? What got you saved? You know what got you saved? Belief. Belief in God, not in yourself. And you don't believe that you can do anything, but by the grace of God, you're going to win. That's what you believe. And courage is you deciding, I'm going to do this. I'm going to choose to do it. I choose not to quit when everybody else may be quitting. I like how Jesus says to the disciples, when everybody starts walking away, no more free food. And the disciples, by the thousands, walk away, and Jesus turns to his 12, and he says, will you also go away? Is your choice to leave too? And Peter says, no way, Jose. It's in the Spanish. Anyway. <clears throat> um, he says, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. They made a choice. Amen. And thirdly, it is an opportunity to see God keep his promises. I have seen too many people waste their lives never seeing God do anything. You know why? Because they don't wait. They're impatient. They're constantly quitting. They're constantly complaining. They're constantly griping. And the Lord says, okay. You know what courage is? You know who wins a boxing match? The guy who, stands, who stays standing just a little bit longer. <laughs> Amen. And if you'll just stay in the ring, if you'll just stay a little longer, but it hurts. But it's, it's long and it's hard. I know, I know. But courage, as, as, as Nehemiah says, just go a little longer. Just don't be afraid. Another word for courage is morale. And any, any military general knows just how important morale is. It's what keeps an army going when they're out of food, when they're surrounded, when they're afraid. And any general will tell you the victory always goes to 80% of it being morale and only 20% to strength. You encourage. That's why. That's why in, in a in a um, uh, in a rugby match against the All Blacks, what do the All Blacks do? What are they doing? Trying to trying to bring up that that dominance of we're gonna eat you for lunch. <laughs> but what are they doing? They're pumping their morale. Amen. And you know when you come in on a Sunday and you're singing like it's the end of the day. You sing, <laughs> telling you, the devil's won. But you get in and you say, you know, morale, 80% of my fight is going to be when I'm encouraged. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sing. And the devil backs off. Amen. Amen, 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 amen. Nehemiah not only armed them with courage, he armed them with confidence in God. Look at uh, 4.14 again. He says, be not afraid of them. Remember who? 414, remember the Lord. Morale is a great thing. Courage is vital. But without God, you cannot win. Amen. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, 16 says, there is no king saved by the multitude of a host, as an army. And a mighty man is not delivered by much strength. So our soul waited for the Lord. He is our help 
and our shield. Christian confidence has three things going for it. It is a right focus, who God is. He says there, verse, uh, look again, verse 14, he says, Remember the Lord which is great and terrible. Terrible is the older word for terrifying. I just, I, I wonder, I wonder, do you know God? I think, I think a lot of Christians know about him. I think a lot of Christians know some facts. They, 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 they don't know who he is. It's kind of like me when I was, um, when I was a kid, I was not this strong and, and, and brawny and, and massive and untouchable. Stop it. So I was this little runt kid that seemed to be picked on by the bullies. And uh, anyway, um, I picked a friend. Uh, his name, if I'm right, I think I'm right. I haven't or thought of him. Everyone's right trying to think of him. I can't remember his name, but I'm going to call him Emmanuel. Manuel was a Mexican, and he was three times my size. He was awesome. He was my friend. And I had a bully named Clifford. I remember his name, okay? <laughs> Clifford. But I remember one day in primary school playing along, and I don't know what it was wrong because I was alone, and Clifford came up. And I remembered Clifford, reminded Clifford. I said, hey, you know Emmanuel, don't you? And Clifford says, yeah. Amen. See, I knew who, who, Clifford, who Emmanuel was. I knew what uh, Emmanuel could do. And I, and I knew that Clifford knew who Emmanuel was. And it is very important for us to know he is the great God. And he's terrifying to the devil. Amen. When Jesus, as meek as he was, when he showed up and some demon-possessed man sitting there and Jesus just got in his presence, those demons cried out, leave us alone. Amen. Do you know who God is? My God, I got on his good side, amen? And it's by the grace of God, wow, I can just remind the devil, you know, you know Jehovah? <laughs> How about the name Jesus, amen? He had, had the right focus. He says, guys, don't forget who God is. Our weapons don't matter who God is. Secondly, they had the right fear. He says, look, he goes on. <clears throat> Uh, be not afraid of them. Remember who to be afraid of. I, I remember the Lord that you should be afraid of him. He is terrifying to us too, by the way. Don't cross him. Because if you fear, if you could just fear one person, it'd be him. And if you fear him, you have no one else to fear. And had to rest. I like this. He's telling them, be not afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible. And go ahead and fight for your brethren, your sons. Why? Because God's in charge. God's in charge. Don't, don't worry. You can rest. I like how there's a story there. Uh, there's an event with Elisha and his servant. Elisha's sort of laying on the hammock. They must have had hammocks back then. I believe they had hammocks back then. But he's laying out on the hammock, and uh, it's early morning, and the servant uh, goes up and looks over the wall of the, of the palace, not the palace, but the castle that they were staying in, and looks over, and he sees an entire army of, of the Syrians. Uh, the Syrian army, and he looks at him, and he runs back to Elisha. He says, Elisha, how are we going to, we're going to die. And you know what Elisha says? Do you not see the bigger army? And he says, what bigger army? There's only one army out there. What are you talking about? Get up and look. And Elisha didn't even get up. Elisha probably didn't even open his eyes. And he says, Lord, open his eyes. 
And when his servant went back out there, looked out there, he saw behind the Syrian army another army, and those chariots were afire. There were angels all around them protecting them. And you know what Elisha was proven? You can rest if God's in charge. You may have to carry your weapons with you. You may have to be spending the rest of your life memorizing Scripture. You may have to spend day in and day out wrestling against uh, temptations and against demonic attack. You may have to, but you can go to sleep at night going, you're okay. Amen. He's in charge. Nehemiah armed them also with a cause. I'm almost finished. Just trying to get through these things because i got to get on to something next week. <clears throat> and he says, fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Now, young David faced Goliath because of what he say? There's a cause. There's a purpose. There's a reason for us to be out here to risk our lives. Nehemiah reminded them of their families and their homes. I don't care how expensive the house that you live in. I don't care the Lexus or the 182 that you just bought or you're buying. None of that compares to those kids and those grandkids, to that wife and that husband, those grandparents. They're worth fighting for. Amen. So he says, there is a reason for us to fight. And by the way, this wasn't just an argument with your neighbor. This was not just, I'm offended by your Facebook post type of situation. This was a life or death. Do you ever ask yourself why nations have armies and soldiers? Because their families in that country are worth defending. Amen. And you and I, we need to take up the whole armor of God. Ladies and gentlemen, every morning, we need to read our Bible to our family. We need to pray with them. We need to teach them the right way. Because it's a popular thing to do? No. Because it's easy? No, because of the cause. The cause of Christ. The purity of the next generation. I have, uh, I love, I love the idea and the ideal of weddings. But are we losing the purity and the holiness of weddings? Because nobody's waiting. Nothing is clean anymore. Everything is already done and dusted. Weddings are now passe. Let me tell you, it's worth fighting for. So that our children, if we ever have a wedding in here, can you imagine the bride walking six feet, right? <laughs> All right, well, I'll do it even. I'll conduct a wedding. The point is, but that six feet ought to be of a godly young lady and a clean, godly young man getting married. Amen. You say, that's impossible. No, it's a lot of work, but it's possible. Amen. Our children's children's hearts and purity and sanity are at stake. What's it going to be like 10 years from now? What are, what are our kids going to grow up with on their phones? They shouldn't have phones, by the way. <clears throat> spirit of Christ should rule your home, not the spirit of rebellion and anger and depression. There's a cause to make sure that we've protected our homes and our, and our, our lives. Lastly, he, he armed them with a sense of commitment, and i got to quit. Verse 16, he says this, came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, the bows, and the habergeons, and the rulers were behind all the houses of Judah. They which build it on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one with one of his hands wrought on the, in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. 
For the builders, everyone had a sword girded by his side, and so builded. <clears throat> now, I want you to see, i got to go on because i got to refer to this in a second. So build him. Um, where did I just leave off? Verse 18, and he that sounded the trumpet was by me. So, And I said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall. The wall was three kilometers around. I mean, if I yelled here, now three kilometers, it's, it's, it's from here to, to downtown Balancholic is about... Uh, uh, about a yeah, about a mile and a, about a uh, kilometer and a half. Let's say, could somebody down at this shopping center hear me yell? No. My wife shakes her head. She says, "Yeah, right. I don't." But <clears throat> you know, if something's going on over here, and I wanted them to come and help, they wouldn't be able to hear me. So he had a trumpet, and I love trumpets in the Bible, by the way, because I'm listening for one, by the way. But he says, uh, the, the guy with the trumpet was by me, and I said unto the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, the work is great and large, and we're separated upon the wall, one from another. In what place, therefore, ye hear the sound of the trumpet? Resort ye thither unto us. Wherever you hear the trumpet, run to us, and our God shall fight for us. So we labored in the work. Half of them held spears from the rising of the morning till the stars appeared. Likewise, the same time said I unto the people, let every one of his servants lodge within Jerusalem. Don't go home. Stay in Jerusalem, that the night, that in the night they may be guard us. Pull double shifts. Stay awake while we're sleeping. And while we're working, you can sleep. And we can labor on in the day. So neither I, nor our brethren, nor our servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that everyone put them on for washing. Before things real quick, they were pulling double shifts. You know, it takes commitment. You know, when we when I started this church uh, 24 years ago, and by the way, we're having our anniversary here in just three weeks. Kind of a cool memory. But I set out I was going to stay with it. It's a hard task. You know, when you get married, you know what you need? One word, commitment. All you need is love is a lie. Because there are some days it's dry. And you just need to be committed till the love flows again. Amen? Commitment. He says we need to pull double shifts. We need to stay in the city. We need to stay. And folks, I'm telling you, it is getting darker and darker. And if we don't settle that our church and what we're trying to do is worth living and being living sacrifices for and committing to, it's all the, the pressure is going to destroy every Bible-leaving church everywhere. Staying in the city, ready to run to the aid of each other, wouldn't it be sad? If somebody in this church is going through hell on earth right now and none of us knew about it, wouldn't that be sad? That's not right. And we don't need everybody coming in and telling us all your problems every day. Right? But you know, some of us, some of us, so busy we forget people are the ministry. The people hurting is what we need to be there for. So don't be so, well, you know, this is Sunday, this is my only day off. Well, you know what, some of us have been working all week too care about one another. And when you see somebody going through something, run to them. Help them. Put a 20-year-old note, put a 50-year-old note in their hand. Take them to lunch. Uh, call them up. Uh, send them a text with scripture on it. Do something to keep people encouraged. Amen? And make sure both hands are full. I mean, one's got that trowel and the other's got that weapon and they're building. And they're, get back, get back, devil. 
I don't know how you do both. I mean, I don't know. Women are the only multitaskers I know. Somehow, somehow, both hands are full. And I just think about, folks, when, you're go to, when you go to work and you've got all that stuff you've got to do, make sure. You may, you, may not, you may not be the smartest person, but take your Bible. Kept me out of a lot of trouble at work. I worked for the telephone company, and when I went to work, and I sat down in my little cubicle there, and everybody, I sat right next to the, to the door, so I set my Bible right on the corner of my table. And those people going by, they go like this. Somebody else walking by, goes, they see that Bible on my, on my desk. You know what? A lot of people didn't ever come and ask me to go drinking. Amen? When they came around and... Uh, Actually, one year, there was a, it was a big performance review, and everybody did so well. They're coming around, and they had a trolley, a grocery trolley full of wine, handing it out to everybody, and everybody coming out of their offices, and I'm sitting in my office, and he goes, you won't want it. <laughs> yes. Amen. At least I had one hand full. The other hand, I'm working on that computer and doing plans and preparing evaluations, stuff like this. But I had my Bible, and during lunch, I read my Bible and I'm talking to a guy from Malta. I gave him the gospel. I, I worked with him for several years. He never heard the gospel in his life, and he was from Malta. He knew about Paul, but didn't know Jesus. Make sure you take that with you to work. Both hands full. Take some gospel tracts. Amen. Both hands full. Keep your hands full. Yes, you've got to work. Yes, you've got to spend time with your wife. Yes, you've got to spend time with your kids. Yes, you've got to be in church. But balance it off and say, I'm ready for you, devil. I've hidden away God's word in my heart. I'm ready for when you try to discourage me or try to get my eyes on something I shouldn't be looking at or my thoughts on things I shouldn't be thinking. Both hands full. Listen for that trumpet. You know, there's something very um, awesome. I don't have a right word for it. Regal? No. When they play the chauffeur, I mean, it is amazing, and it's terrifying at the same time. When you've got several of them playing, they're so loud, it's unlike any other horn you'd ever hear. Let me tell you, one of these days, there is a shout going to play. Now, this is, a, this is a, a trumpet sound. This is the trumpet sound of battle. And let me say this. You need to have some quiet time in your life every day where the Holy Spirit can be that trumpet and say, warning, danger today, stay close to me. Warning. Anyway, I'm through. Are you armed or are you living defenseless? Has the world tricked you into giving in simply because they seem to have the bigger weapons, the smarter speakers? Oh, they've got all the movie stars. Boy, that makes it easy for me. Because <laughs> they don't impress me at all. What's in your hand, dear Christian? Anything? You not only need the tools of your tasks, of your days, but you need weapons like a prayer list. Get you a prayer list and pray for people. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your pastor's wife. Pray for your future grandkids. Amen. Everyone needs to be building and helping and serving. Everyone needs to be armed. Stay encouraged, folks. Have some courage to say, you know what, I feel discouraged. I feel like, don't do that. Nehemiah says, don't give up, don't quit. No, we got to stay encouraged because our confidence is in God. 
We have a cause, folks. We have a priority cause. This is not just an argument. This is freedom. We'll stay to the end. You know, it's, it's, I like. I can't wait to see the end. Amen. I, I, how many? Uh, it's kind of stupid, but if you ever watch a movie, don't you hate it when somebody says, "Time to go to bed." I want to see the end. All right, stupid illustration, but the principle is this. I can't wait for the end. I want to stay faithful. So the Lord says, well done now, good and faithful servant. I got a thought here. Dads, don't leave the battle to your wife to fight. It is a lie of the devil to make a man believe that spiritual things are for women and weak-minded people. Did you hear me? It is a lie of the devil to make a man believe spiritual things are for women and weak-minded people. Spiritual warfare is just as real and deadly as a war has ever been throughout history. Your home desperately needs a Christian man, a soldier in the fight against sin and Satan and selfishness and discouragement, defeat and fear. Your home needs you. Gentlemen, will you stand against the wiles of the devil's attack against you and your family? Will you stop fighting your wife? Come on, women, say amen. Stop fighting your teenagers and start fighting the real enemy in your home. Amen. There's a spirit behind that spirit. You spend as much time on your knees as you do in front of your entertainment and in front of your sports. Ladies, you knew it was coming. Your man married the most beautiful, delicate, sweetest person on the planet. But he desperately needs a fellow soldier in the fight against sin and Satan and selfishness and discouragement, defeat and fear. He needs you. Will you stop you're fighting and hold up your husband in prayer and start fighting the real enemy in your home. Young people, teens, and even the preteens, your family needs all hands on deck. They need everyone pulling together, praying together, fighting our one enemy together. You could be the one. You could be 15 years old and be the one that breaks the devil's back and gets your parents saved or, or keeps things together. You could, if, if the devil wins, you could be the one that splits it all. Who knows? Don't be on the wrong side. Pull things together. If you'll take spiritual warfare seriously, say, I'm only 14 years old. You're in the fight. If you're saved, you're in the fight. Don't be a casualty of war. Don't end up drunk. Don't end up a dopehead. Don't end up an addict. Don't end up a jerk or a selfish brat. Be a Christian at 14 years old, amen, and 15, and 16, and 17. It's sickening to watch kids go through teens and go through Sunday school and go through children's church and go through church and go through preaching and go through discipleship and then watch them go to hell. That's not of God. We need some teenagers to say, I'm staying on the right side. Jesus fought for you. He submitted himself to the wrath of Almighty God that should have been directed at you and me. He took our beating. He took our punishment. He took our place in death. You know what? He won. That's a fighter. Let's fight like he did. Father, I ask that you would just take these thoughts. Help us to realize the spiritual fight is real. And if it, if, if it doesn't happen within the next 10 seconds, it'll happen within the next 10 minutes, the devil will attack. I ask you to make us ready and make us humble, Lord, so that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of darkness. Help us to take the battle to where the real fight is. Help us to have the right weapons. Help us to have courage. 
Help us to have Jesus. It will all be in vain if we try to do it in our own strength, and we will be very discouraged. But with you, we've already won. I love you, Lord. I pray that you just bless these thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen.